Thanks for joining us today. We believe God is doing great things in your life, and we want to hear about it. Send us your story at mystory@summitsa.com and let us know what He's done for you through this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us or bless us with a financial gift, go to summitsa.com and give an amount that best works for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. Well, this morning we're going to close our series on living beyond fear. And I'm going to do something really simple and something that applies from my heart to every human being. It's facing eternity without fear. We've looked at a lot. I've loved all these series, but I'm going to do a real simple close about how you can face this afterlife without any kind of a fear at all. Now, we've seen fear is universal. It can be quite intense. We've seen out of three series that God doesn't want anybody to live in fear. And the most repeated command in Scripture is, fear not, for I am with you. Now, in 1 John 4, verse 18, John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with torment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So God wants us to live so completely in His love, we don't have to be afraid of anything. Now, there's another thread in Scripture called the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not your SAT scores or task score, not your IQ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Later on, it says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. So about 150 times in the Bible, there are references to the fear of the Lord, and that's a good thing. Now, how do I put this together? Because sometimes these teachings get confusing. Let me show you one. In Exodus 20, verse 20, this is Moses. This is Mount Sinai. God shows up, obviously, thunder, lightning, clouds, and earthquake, and the people are scared to death. They don't want to get near God. They're afraid of God. They tell Moses, I love this, yeah, you go get close to him. You come back and tell us what he said. We don't want to get close. We figure if you get burned, we'll be all right. Yeah, people love that. You know, after you walk a mile in the shoes, then others don't mind putting them on, but nobody wants to be the first one. So Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you, so the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. Now, why does Moses say that? Why did he say on one hand, we read it, don't be afraid, and then in the next breath, he says, God has done this, so the fear of the Lord will be with you. Well, I thought of a couple of reasons. Number one, maybe Moses has bad short-term memory. Forgot what he said. Number two, Moses likes to keep people guessing. Uh, maybe you know the right answer, but you're afraid to say it. Or option number four, which is the correct one, there's two sides to this business of fearing God, and that's what I want to look at. Should I be afraid of God? Well, we are to live in a sense of reverent and awe. That Bible talks, that, talks about that as being the fear of the Lord, reverential respect. I wasn't like this with my dad, but I, I had a, a, a reverent fear of this military man, a respect, an honor. that uh, I was pretty cautious about what I said. I never called my dad old man. Not if I didn't want my face to see sheetrock in that house, I didn't. Some of you need that too. I'm, I'm a yes ma'am, no ma'am to anybody, age, whatever. I, that comes from the military training in me. So we, we are to have a healthy sense of respect, but we're not to be afraid of God in a way that keeps Him far off, distant somewhere. 
So in this simple message, I want, about, I want to talk about how it works that perfect love casts out fear. I'm going to explain the gospel. The gospel is called good news. It's Christianity. How do you become a Christian so that you don't have to be afraid of eternity or God in any way? So I'm going to use some props. Look at the screens. And my first picture is lightning. And it demonstrates that God is all-powerful. Psalms 29 says, the voice of the Lord is very powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning, verse 7. So lightning, as you know, is a very powerful force. One bolt of lightning carries billions of volts of electricity. The average temperature in an average bolt of lightning is 50,000 degrees. That's five times hotter than the surface of the sun. Now, the writer of Psalms says, the voice of God is like a strike of lightning. Now, I'm fascinated by lightning. I've watched it magnificently in many parts of the world, but I have a healthy respect for it too. And so the psalmist said, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. And the reason he chose lightning was in his day, that was the most powerful symbol of force he could think of. When lightning strikes something, maybe something's going to happen, right? It'll chop a tree in half. It'll put a hole in a roof and set fire. It's a, it's a very powerful thing. But the psalmist says when the voice of God speaks, something happens too. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 12, he says, God measured the universe with the breadth of his hand. Look at this picture. People think God must have a hard time keeping track of this enormous universe. But Isaiah says, nope. God measures the universe by the breadth of his hand. The whole universe will fit right there. So everything that is will fit in God's hand. God's power is infinite. God's power is unlimited. So keeping track of the universe, running it, not even a challenge, a sweat at all. He even calls the stars by name. Now, when human beings come up against that power, it can be kind of scary. One day, Jesus and disciples are in a boat in a major storm, and for fishermen that are skilled, as Peter and his family were, skillful fishermen, when they're scared, you got a real problem going on. They've got torrential rain, heavy, heavy winds, waves breaking over the boat. They think they're in for it. They're screaming like little girls. They're in panic. And they, in Mark chapter 4, they go wake up the master and say, hey, why aren't you doing something? Why don't you at least wake up? He's asleep. So Jesus woke up and stood up in the boat, looked out at the storm, rain hitting him in the face, wind and waves, and he lifted up a hand and said in the Greek, shut up. <laughs> and the Bible says, he said, peace be still. That's King James. That's 400-year-old language. That doesn't cut it. Shut up. Be quiet. Boom. It says instantly the wind stopped, the sea went flat, and the disciples they got sunburn of the mouth. They, they have never seen someone who command winds and elements to obey him. And suddenly, Jesus said to him, why were you afraid? Verse 40, you have such a little faith. Well, their fear didn't go away. It just got redirected. I ain't sweating that storm. Did you see what he just did? Yeah, that's a healthy fear of the Lord. So when people encounter the living God, you come before all power. That's a pretty frightening thing. And what's scary is it's not just physical power, it's also spiritual power. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10. Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body, but be afraid of those who can kill the soul. 
Now, we're often afraid of an intimidating person or uh, some bully or perhaps a criminal or even a terrorist. But Jesus says, look, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And that one is God because you and I are eternal beings. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, your existence won't stop at death. You're an eternal being. So Jesus is making an irrefutable point. Don't be afraid of somebody who can just stop your physical life. Be afraid of the one who can kill body and soul in hell. By the way, Satan can't do that. He can just kill your body. But God can cut the lights out and take care of everything, physically and spiritually. So that kind of leads to this question. What kind of a person is God? How's he going to decide who gets to live forever with him? Now I've got another prop. And it's a light I'm going to show you, and it reflects a statement in the Gospel of John. He says in 1 John 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him. We declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light is a statement about his character. Now, the light I have this morning is a halogen light. Normally, your bulbs at home are probably at 150 watts. This is around 5,000 watts, I guess. I've had this for several years. It, at 5 a.m., my wife in her jammies will hold it while I, say how to say this, while I take an armadillo into another realm of life. I, um, <laughs> I shoot him for tearing up her flower beds, and that's when you do it. When he sees that bright light, he just freezes. I put that red dot on him, and life is over. It's good. That's, that's, that's been a lot of them. Now, if I can get this thing to work here, it was a, you quit laughing at me. This is hard. This is supposed to work. Ah, there we go. Everybody see? That's a bright light, right? Right here. Boy, that, that, that's, a, that, that's a pretty heavy light. Now, you know, I can see what you folks are doing right here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see. Some of you folks way, way up there. I, I don't know what you're doing. You could be doing anything up there in the dark areas or whatever. But, boy, when that light comes on you, it, you can't hide anything. Now, that, that tells me a spiritual truth here. It just means, he says this, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's in John chapter 3, verse 19. So we want to keep our sins hidden so we love darkness. Now, with that light on, I can see everything. But spiritually, this isn't just physically. Spiritually, he's speaking. What we do in darkness that other people don't know one day we'll be exposed to his light. God says, I'm light. There's no darkness in me. That means God's never told a lie. God's never been the truth. God's never been unjust. God is light. Now, that's good news. He's perfectly just. But there's another piece of information, which is that one day God says he's going to examine every human life. God is going to bring justice to the world. I know there are people who escaped murder, savagery, uh, genocide, uh, during every war, we call it uh, uh, the, the crimes against humanity, and a few escaped prosecution and died in relative peace. But they didn't escape. They will stand before God's judgment, and everything will be exposed, and that knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Hitler will bow. Mussolini will bow. Osama bin Laden will find out who's the true God and bow his knee, and they will face the light of God's judgment. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. 
Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. So one day the Bible says judgment is coming. Not just death, but judgment as well. And he will judge humanity by the light of his holiness. Now this is real important because a lot of people are confused by what standard God will judge. Most people who are not Christians or Christians untaught or poorly taught think God judges on the curve. University of South Carolina, my senior year, I had to take calculus. God knows why. Absolutely worthless to me and so hard for me. And we started with a class of 50, and after the first exam, everybody dropped the class, and there were only seven of us left. And you could get a D minus and come up with a B plus on the curve. I know I did. <laughs> that was frightening. But everybody was so bad. My bad wasn't as bad. And it looked good. So they gave me a curve. So. A lot of people think there's some real bad people in the world and judgment ought to come their way, but the failing grade will be whatever is a little lower than I live on, whatever is a little lower than me. So they're hoping when judgment day comes, they're going to get behind somebody so really bad, they're going to look good. They hope they'll be in line behind Saddam Hussein or Dennis Rodman or Lady Gaga or somebody. But what if you're behind Billy Graham or Mother Teresa? And what if you heard the Lord say, I'm sorry, Billy. I'm sorry, Mother Teresa. You didn't do quite enough. Next. What, what then? And by the way, you're going to see in a minute, that's not going to happen. But stay with me. That's the way people think. So it's really important you understand the question about how God decides who will live with him forever so you don't have to have fear of eternity. The Bible says God is all-powerful. He holds all spiritual power. He's completely holy perfect and just. And one day, he's going to examine and judge every human being. So the question is, how am I going to do? Is it pass or fail, or is it a grade on the curve? Well, watch the screen. Here's another picture. It's a bar of soap. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. God says, though you wash yourself with much soap, the stain of your sin or guilt is still before me, says the Lord God. So every one of us in this room, me included, everybody carries a stain. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, all of us haven't sinned as bad as we could, but all of us have sinned. And if you sin one sin, you miss God's standard of holiness, which is perfection. And I don't see anybody glowing in the dark in here that's perfect. You know, maybe, maybe... His ex-wife was perfect when he married again or something. But it's just, it's like going to a morgue. This guy's been dead three hours. This guy's been dead three days. This guy's been dead three weeks. Which one's the deadest? What a dumb question. They're all dead. They're all dead. All have sinned and come short. So everybody in this room has come short. So now I'm in a mess now. I've got a stain I can't remove. I'm guilty of sin. I am a stained man. But I'm trying to think, well, there got to be people more stained than I am. That's how we excuse it. But in the light of God's perfect holiness and righteousness, that stain isn't going to come out, and it's not going to get me a pass. And you're thinking, well, there's other people worse than me. Maybe I shade the truth a little. Maybe I fudge on my taxes. But there's a lot of people doing a whole lot worse than I'm doing. 
But God says he's going to judge the human race by a standard of perfect holiness and righteousness, which means, sheesh, nobody makes it. Nobody's qualified. Romans 3, verse 12, there's none that does good. No, not one. You like, you know, there's scripture that's hard to understand. There's scripture that's a bit mystical. That sounds pretty clear to me. There's none, nada, zero, nothing, right? How do you say nothing in Spanish? Nada, okay. There ain't nada that doeth good. No, not what. That's what God says about everything you do good. And notice Jeremiah says, although you're washing yourself with soap, much soap, you can't get the stain out. There ain't a detergent that can get it out. And some of you have tried that. And here's your soap. Maybe if I go to church enough. Maybe if I give enough. Maybe if I don't commit adultery. Maybe if I don't get drunk. Maybe if I give enough money. Maybe if I do enough volunteer work. Maybe if I give to the United Way. Maybe if I do enough good deeds. Maybe if I eliminate some bad habits. Maybe I can just do enough. Now think about it. How do you know, en- how, do you know how enough enough is? You don't. You can't. And God's not going to leave you in that dilemma. But you put people in it, and they're tormented all the time. That's why they go to churches, and they have to get saved, they think, every week. I'm like, Lord, God ain't done very much for you. You got to get, you don't understand what happened. Every week, they got to come to the altar and get saved. I'm thinking, dude, you need a little education here. When God does a good work, it's eternal, it's finished. I mean, what, what, what are you doing? You might just have had a bad week, okay, but you don't, you don't get re- regenerated. So the truth about everybody in this room is we're all stained. And you can't get it out by yourself. And maybe you're troubled by it. You're hoping, if I could just do enough, but you can't. That's what God says. So here's the good news about God. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 3, 9. Now, moving towards the good news, all right? The Bible says, God is not willing any should perish. So it's not God's will anybody be separated from him. So we come to the heart of Christianity, and that's the next picture, a cross. The cross is an instrument of execution, of death. And the Bible says the wages or payment of sin, death. So sin brings death. I die a little every time I sin. My conscience dies a little. You die relational deaths. Physical death came into the world through sin. It was never part of God's plan. Good old Adam and his wife helped bring us into this mess. But nobody had to die originally. Every death that gets experience that cuts you and me is a result of sin. And ultimately, there's a spiritual death. And that's the ultimate death where we're separated from God for eternity because only because we reject His offer of payment for that sin. So God says, I'm going to make a way for people to be forgiven and to get that stain of sin removed whiter than snow. So Jesus came. He lived as a human being. He breathed our air. He walked on our earth. He showed us life. Then he went to the cross and was executed. And when he was doing that, he was dying the death I rightfully should be experiencing, and you should. He took my place on the cross. He didn't have to. There was no sin in him. What can wash away my sin, my stain? We used to sing the song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Now, we deserve to die because of sin, but Jesus instead died for us. Every once in a while, we hear about, in combat particularly, somebody making the ultimate sacrifice for another. 
in Afghanistan, a Marine rolled out into open fire so he could get the satellite phone to work to radio for help. His company had been ambushed. They had several casualties. He got the help on the radio but was ultimately killed by enemy fire because he exposed himself to death for the safety of his Marine buddies. But imagine somebody sacrificing their life for somebody who's an enemy. Chew on that a while. The Bible says that in Jesus, God came to the earth, went to the cross, suffered, was beaten, and died for you and me while we were still sinful and enemies of God. Jesus did that. He took my place. He took your place on a cross. Here's what St. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He personally carried away our sin in his own body on the cross so we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. He died, so I don't have to die. He's my substitute. Now, you remember the Hebrews would cut the neck of a lamb, catch the blood, bring it to the priest, and that blood would make atonement for their sin. And they had to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it every day until one day John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No more. And he's going to die once for everybody and take away sin forever. That was never possible under the law, but now something's changed. Now my forgiveness can come. God says, your sin and iniquity, I will remember it no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he says, I won't remember it anymore. Now people might, but God says, I won't. Now here's another picture. Now here's the last one. It's a bill printed across it in big red letters. Paid in full. I want to see that over Summit's mortgage. Paid in full. And one of the images God uses for forgiveness that comes by grace is the image of a debt, a moral debt. People get trapped in financial debt. They can hardly get out. Uh, we had a guy that was using credit cards. He'd get one, max it out, get another one, max it out. Then he'd get another one to make payments on the other two. Somebody took him to a financial seminar, and he got so psyched up, he went to the product table and bought $650 worth of CDs. How he paid? Oh, yeah, credit card. <laughs> Not good. Jesus said it's like we have this incalculable, unpayable moral debt to God. You can't pay it. I can't pay it. You don't, Billy Graham can't pay it. Mother Teresa can't pay it. I don't have the resources. Why? God's payment is a perfect, sinless life. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid my moral debt to God. He paid the debt of my sin. However terrible it may have been, it's been paid for on the cross. He paid it in full. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For you know it was not with perishable things like silver and gold by which you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or no defect. And every Hebrew knew what that meant. You had to bring the male lamb, the firstborn, without mange, a broken bone, or defect. Jesus, the perfect, sinless lamb of God, the firstborn of the Father. And he comes, fulfills the law, keeps it perfectly, and then dies in my place because I can never. Well, isn't that law good? Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect law. Trouble is I can't keep it. So when I come to Jesus and he accepts me, I accept him. Then the Father counts me to have kept the law because Jesus kept it. He imputes to me. What I never earned. Have you ever had anybody pay? I was eating dinner a couple of weeks ago, sitting around for dinner, and the waitress said, uh, your meal's been paid for. That was imputed to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't ask for it. Didn't know it was coming. 
but I sure was grateful. It was imputed to me. A few years ago, somebody gave me a car out of the blue. Didn't know it was coming. Didn't cost me a penny. Don't be throwing rocks and putting a key mark down the side of that car. Somebody gave me that. It was imputed to me. Well, my righteousness, my righteousness has been imputed to me. He, he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus. So he took my coat of sinfulness, he took it on, and he gave me his righteousness called a robe of righteousness. And now all the Father can see is Jesus when he sees me. Now my wife sees more than Jesus when she sees me. But that's all the Father sees. That means every sin of yours and mine, no matter what it was, past or present, has been paid in full. And silver and gold can't do it. Some of the Nazi war criminals went to some of the church people and, and paid indulgences and gave money so that they thought they could be pardoned in purgatory and released. However, you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, not by perishable, corruptible things like silver and gold. You can't pay enough to get rid of that stain. So Jesus died the sacrifice I deserve once for everybody, and it's done. And he shouts on the cross, it is finished. In the Greek, tetelestē, or paid in full. I can't add anything to it. Well, you ought not do this, you ought not do that. Yeah, ought not. But doing it or not doing it doesn't make me righteous. He has made me righteous. It has been imputed to me. Do you understand? People want so badly to, well, I know Jesus died for me, but I need to do a little bit. That man who gave me a car or bought a nice dinner when I took my wife out for an anniversary, I could have said, well, I got to do something. I gotta, here's a dollar. Well, now it's a payment. It's not a gift. But the gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus. It's a gift. Somebody paid for it, offered it, and you either reject it or you receive it. I don't know how church got this so messed up. You have to go to church to be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. You, you don't know what's going on. And if you go from each one to each one, the rules change. Nothing has changed. Jesus paid it all. So here's what you're faced with. Doing or done. So it's a finished work. Sometimes my behavior, especially on 281, is not good. I'm not too patient. And I'm tempted to push the speed just a little bit more than I should. Guilty. But I'm not unrighteous. I have been made righteous by somebody else's righteousness as a gift. So I'm never going to be condemned. My judgment has already occurred at the cross. Thank God for that. So I get to walk. Now, I want to behave. I want to do what is right. I don't want to, to do things that are wrong, but we do. We're sinful creatures. And thank God it has nothing to do with my eternal standing. I was bought with a price. I didn't pay it. It was a gift, and nothing can change that. And that's about the best news I ever heard in my life. So here's the gospel. God's all-powerful, perfectly holy. You and I are fallen. We're sinful, and God loves us very much. He loved you enough to come to earth, die on the cross in your place, and pay the debt of sin. And knowing all that, you still have to take one more step or it doesn't matter. You have to accept it. You know, when you got married, you got a marriage license. It was a statement of relational commitment. It wasn't going steady. Going steady is not a high level of commitment. You can keep your options open going steady. But when you get married, there ain't no maybe on the category. 
If you sign one of those, you say, with all that I am, all that I have, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness and health, I will love you and cherish you till death do we part. Now, that's the gospel. God is all-powerful, perfect, and holy. We're all flawed. We're all sinful. We can't pay the debt we owe, so Jesus died on the cross on my behalf. So, that forgiveness and grace are the free gift of God, not something I have to earn. It covers my sin yesterday, today, and forever. And this commitment is what God's asking you to make, to say, all right, God, all that I have, all that I am, I give to you. And I want to give you a chance to do that. I've committed my life to the truth that this is the most important decision a human being can ever make. I'm committed to the truth that all of us are sinners, me included, and that Jesus Christ, not governments, not political parties, not religious people, Jesus only died for us, and I want to belong to him. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty narrow. See, it's not by the rules you keep, it's by a person you accept, which is Jesus. And at 27 years of age, I did that nearly 45 years ago. And no matter what happens in my life, now till my life ends, nothing can change that. Nothing can touch that. And my greatest wish for everybody in this room is that you know you're a child of God and that Jesus, what he did on the cross, belongs to you. So that when the end of your life comes, and it will, sooner than you think, you'll face eternity with no fear because you're going to be right there in the hand of God who said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's why Jesus said, look, boys, nothing on earth can compete with my good news. And that's why publicans and sinners flock to him and why they stay away from church by the tens of thousands because they don't hear good news. Now, I want to behave. Don't misunderstand. But my behavior is not how I become righteous. My faith in the one who did behave is what makes me righteous. And there's what God says, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, not in church, in Christ Jesus. None. Guilt, shame, and condemnation can't touch me. Why? He's already paid for it. Now, the enemy will come, and if you're ignorant, he'll torment you with fear. But perfect love casts out all fear. You say, get behind me, Satan. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, not my works, but his. You're a liar, and he is. And you walk in boldness and confidence every day. And when it's stage four cancer or you're in combat and your life is taken, there's no fear. You will walk right into the presence of God, boldly, unashamed, and fully accepted. No fear. That's why we ought to be the most bold, courageous people on the face of the earth. No fear about eternity. Got that in the bag. I want to make a difference now with my life, my temporal life on this earth. I want you to bow your head with me for just a second. I'd like you to stand to your feet, would you? Fear of God, fear of eternity. I don't know what your fear may be, but God wants to remove that fear. There's no fear in perfect love. And today you need that barrier removed. Some of you are afraid of eternity. You're not sure. Am I in? Am I out? God wants you to be sure. The Apostle John said, these things are written that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in His name, that you may know, not hope, know, I'm a child of God. I'm redeemed. I'm a prince and a king. I have the power to bind and the power to loose. And I'm accepted in the beloved. On my worst day, on my best day, I'm accepted because of what Jesus did for me. Judgment will never touch me. 
that judgment you hear in the Bible, that's going to be for the unbeliever. The believer's already been judged in Christ, and you're not going to have to line up for anything. You're escorted into the presence of God instantly, so you don't have to be afraid for a loved one or for your own life. With our heads bowed, if you're wrestling with fear, maybe fear of eternity, maybe you're in a slave to, to the, the fear of your addiction, or you're not sure God loves you because of something in your past, I want to pray for you. If you've never accepted Jesus, you're not confident He's your Savior. Maybe you're unsure. Oh, for goodness sakes, don't mess that up. This is too simple to take care of and too important to delay. I, will, I just want to pray for you. If you're in any of those categories, would you just let me know by just lifting up a hand? Just lift a hand up and say, Rick, include me in that prayer. I see hands. That's it. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Upstairs, downstairs, I see those hands. Now, normally I don't do this, but I think it's fitting to do it here. I'm going to ask everybody that lifted a hand, and some of you who wanted to but are a little timid, I'm going to pray for you, but I want you to come stand with me. Would you just get out of a chair? Come on, just move. Just push somebody out of the way. It won't take a minute. Come on, we've only been here one hour. Come on. Come on. Come on, right now. Get out of that chair. We're going we're gonna to do something publicly. We're going to step out of our slavery into our liberty as children of the Most High God. We're not going to live in fear, guilt, shame, or condemnation. Come on, make a statement. Slap the enemy in the face. God bless you. God bless you. I'll wait on you. Come on, I see you coming. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask everybody in the church family to pray with me, and I'm going to ask all of you here at the front to pray with me. I pray a real baby prayer, but we're all going to pray it together. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess you are the Son of God. I believe you died in my place. You paid for my sin and rose from the dead. Come into my heart this morning as my Savior, as my Lord. Forgive my sin. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses of all sin. Thank you. You will never leave me, never forsake me, and remember my sin no more. I stand against all fear. Thank you, Lord. There is no guilt, no shame, and no condemnation to those in Christ. Satan, you are a liar. I am uncondemned in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for the gift of eternal life and the power of your presence in Jesus' name, somebody shout amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Woo! For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.